Welcome to Inside Dance, a podcast that celebrates the Bates Dance Festival artists and teachers. I'm your host, Lindsay LaPointe. We are here at the Bates College campus on the land of the Wabanaki people. We're offering a smaller than usual professional training program this summer with just under 40 students. Rotating afternoon faculty and two three-week faculty members, one of them being Tania Isaac. Tania has been coming to the festival for many years to teach and perform. This summer, she will be teaching Zen Raga movement theory that blends Caribbean sensuous and sensibility with a meditative focus, Martinia-based clarity of action, beginning always with expansive breath and elastic muscle She plays with the dynamics of raw drive and subtle crafted intention, moving smoothly through contemporary modern, postmodern, soca, and reggae forms. The goal is to seamlessly integrate these movement palettes, building attention to detail and to crafting a personally expressive physical language. Tanya Isaac is a former Pew Fellow and McDonald Fellow, a choreographer, dancer, writer, who has led international performances while creating models for a thoughtful, audience-centered engagement. During that time, she also presented papers, publications, and projects on creating process in the arts and its potential applications across multiple fields. A self-described kinesophile and lover of information, both physical and verbal. She is a dancer because she loves language, a choreographer because she loves conversation, and an artist because she never runs out of questions. The interview you're about to hear was recorded in 2017 while she was last year teaching at the festival. My name is Tanya Isaac, and I'm originally from St. Lucia in the Southeastern Caribbean. I moved to the U.S. in 94 for college and have been here since. I currently live in Philadelphia with my family where I teach and make dances and write. In some of my writing, I talk about the idea of just moving as being part of the culture. So I've always danced. I grew up in a culture where people dance. We went to folk dances with my dad. We went out dancing. High school was all about dance parties, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday, if you could stand it. Um, So moving was a big thing. I didn't take a lot of dance classes. Later, I danced twice a week. And we did modern dancing, which was whatever our teacher taught us. And we did a lot of cultural dances as well. I had no intention of being a dancer. It was a thing that I knew that I loved. My mother has really great stories about how much, about how forceful I was about continuing to do it, which I don't remember. For me, it was just a pastime and I did it a lot. And I knew I made time to do it and I was always ready, but she has all these examples and moments where I insisted that I would do nothing else if I didn't go to class or if I didn't attend this particular thing. So mostly, I don't know. choose not to believe her. And um, in college, I really discovered how much I missed it when I wasn't doing it and how much it meant to be doing it. 
and was curious about what the other dancers were studying and fell in love with creating movement and making movement and then started looking for more mentorship in terms of choreography and different ways of performing and different kinds of performances. I like the word kinesiophile. I use it a lot when I'm writing because I just like moving. I like every single kind of movement. And so there's this hunger and there's this curiosity about what a body can do and how many ways it can be expressive and how you figure it out and what it feels like. And that, I feel like, continues to drive me right now. I grew up in a family of educators. So my mom was an elementary school teacher. By the time I went to elementary school, she was my elementary school principal, which was great. <laughs> um, my dad was also an elementary school principal, and he was a preacher. He was a local preacher at the Methodist Church. Um, my mom was very involved in the Catholic Church. We were part of Sunday school. We were part of everything that happened. I remember um, there was a little bench that I stood on to do readings in church when my dad was preaching or when other things were happening. Um, and that was a big community for us growing up. And I, you know, we've had long conversations about why I disagree with 95 to 98% of everything at this point in time. But the, the sense of belonging to a group of people and of being just accepted because you existed was fantastic. Um, my parents were both really incredible teachers and they cared a lot about the students, about the families. Um, we had a lot of conversations in our house about what education was and what it meant. Um, a lot of conversations about just responsibility to community and what culture was and how you support it and sustain it and what worked and what didn't. Um, my parents also were from the era where learning literature was partly memorization and so they knew reams of poems and Shakespeare and things that we recited and I talk a lot about this idea of, I get it from my sister, she does literary translation and we talked a lot about this idea of heterarchy that everything is equally important and what happens and how you connect things when they're not in this sort of hierarchical form. And I think that that was a big part of my background. So when we had our bookshelves, and I love talking about our bookshelves because we had Shakespeare, we had Asterix, we had the Quran, and we had the Bible, and we had, you know, every classic. We had the comic book version of historical classics, we had this other version. We had Mac Bolan, which was like a, you know, GI Delta Force novels about, you know, whatever. We had romance novels. We had superheroes. Like, it was just everything was on the shelf, and it was all good. Like, it was just good that it all existed, and we were just absorbing all of it. So there was no hierarchy of information or of the intellectual value of one thing over the other. Like, it all had value because someone had made it. Um, I have loved conversations and for me teaching is a lot about the conversation and the capacity to, um, to feed curiosity, to feed someone else's curiosity, to help them ask a lot of questions and to figure out what they want to do in the world and how they want to direct their ideas. And teaching is the way that you do it. Um, I think I have like some of the frameworks that I've developed that are really just based on 
those practices. What are you curious about? What do you want to do it? How do you want to do it? Do things exist in those ways? If they're not, how are you going to make the structures for what it is that you want to pursue? And for me, that's exciting. I really like um, college because there's a certainty with which college students enter the world for the most part that I think is amazing. I think like that age of sort of 16 to 21 when you've decided that you know everything and you've read everything and you've done everything and you are completely in charge of all of the information and you have no idea that it's been done a hundred times before and there are you know thousands of books you haven't read yet but that certainty let's feel like that certainty is important because that's the cultural interface like things evolve because people come in and they're like I just read all of this and this is the thing we should do and you go well yeah that's great and then you know somebody did that 50 years ago but how would you like to do it differently and that kind of confidence that willingness to disrupt and challenge things I think is the reason why societies move forward and without that energy there's nothing so for me it's how do you take that certainty and how do you channel it like give it enough information not to squash it but enough information to break open the next set of things so that we have a society that changes and we have a culture that shifts and we respect the fact that there is this energy and these sets of ideas that keep coming in and I get excited about that. From college there are a lot of things that I can track in terms of trajectory. I have to say that I started out taking a mechanics class in the engineering building which was maybe two blocks away from the dance building and on my way from the engineering building. I stopped in the dance building because it was going to be the last time I really took dance classes and made time for it. And I walked into Claudia Melrose, who was one of the dance faculty there. And I was staring at the bulletin board and she walked up to me and said, you look like a dancer and are you interested in taking classes? And I said, sure. And the class that I could take was at the same time as the mechanics class that I was about to take at the engineering school and it was that same thing where I figured well it's the last time I'm really going to be taking dance classes so I might as well take this dance class and not bother I'll take mechanics later and then I took that dance class and ended up in some of her choreography and then took more dance classes and then I was going to do PT because I still wasn't sure about it and then I started doing composition and that rocked my world and then it just slowly shrunk down until I was just doing a dance major um let's see at madison there were a couple things i was really interested in mechanics and the dance program was in the department of kinesiology and we were taking biomechanics and we were doing um, Bartenev work and laban work and buff brennan was amazing she was there she taught all the foundational classes the fundamentals of movement and sort of watching the body sort of break into these moving parts and then understanding that those parts become expressive once you take like you layer all of the physics on top of it and I had Li Chaoping who was there who at the time was really interested in exploring a lot of raw physicality which I also responded to so we were figuring out to backward rolls into headstands and how you fall to the floor without hurting yourself and all of this like it fed all the parts of my brain and my body at the same time and that was phenomenal while I was there I also met Anita Gonzalez who was a PhD student in theater she had been a founding member of Urban Bush Women I was talking to Anita 
and um, asking about really, really what I should do next. And she suggested I go straight to graduate school because I might not like going later. And I asked her why, and um, it was a personality thing. I tend to be a little hard-headed. Um, I don't like being told what to do, although I'm always open to conversations. And she thought that being out in the professional world and coming back to a situation that was more structured would be difficult for me. So she suggested I go to graduate school right away. And I took her up on it, and I found a place at Temple. And I was there for three years. And I think the thing that I discovered most at Temple was what I wanted to do. Um, I had interesting professors. Anne Bichon was there. Eva Golson was there. Um, Marianne Soto came in my last year. And we had great conversations, because it's sort of that very straightforward. Well, what are you trying to do? Why are you doing it that way? And having to answer some of those questions. But I had a lot of space, and I had a lot of time figuring out what was my Caribbean self, what was my postmodern self, how they intersected, what was the writing about, because I had to write about everything, what was my curiosity in science. Everything just kept going in all these directions, and I was kind of able to follow them all and figure out what work I wanted to do. During grad school, I did a workshop with Urban Bush Women, and Jowley was folding in some new people into the company, and really, really loved it. Right when I was done, she was doing a project at Mass Mocha and asked me if I would be interested in working with her, which, you know, I thought about it. <laughs> Not really at all. And it was, it was fantastic. I did, um, I was with Urban Bush Women, trying to remember the years. Mm, I don't remember all the years. I never catalog stuff. But I was with Urban Bush Women for a year or two. Loved, loved the company work, but I was still based in Philly, and I rehearsed in New York or where we had residencies, and travel became really difficult. And in, um, in light of being incredibly stubborn, I also had decided I was having kids before I was 30. I really wanted to have kids, and it was, I was getting close to 30, and I hadn't done it yet, so I figured it was time to you know, get going. <laughs> and I moved back to Philly. Oh, and I forgot, because after grad school, I worked um, as Rennie Harris's publicity assistant. So I was sending out photos and making sure contracts were signed and delivered. And at the time, he was at Kumquat in Philly, so the company would rehearse just outside of the office door. And that was awesome. I had a great relationship with him. It was great to watch the dancers. And I didn't really move with them, but we were just... You know, it was nice to be in the space together. And I feel like I learned a lot about how the managing of a company worked. So it felt, once I started making my own work, it felt very easy to move into the administration of all of it. Um, I started working with Rennie. At some point, I had done a solo show in Philly, and it was the first time he had seen me do anything other than modern dance, because I had a dance hall solo in it. And um, he asked me about working on a project with him, and that was Facing Mecca, which we did in some 2000, early 2000. And that was, again, that was phenomenal. And one of my favorite things was that Abstract, one of the breakers, was in that show. And so we would have these moments in rehearsal and backstage where I'd have him teach me, like, what's this thing? And you do it on the floor and move like this. And so I had this whole other 
vocabulary that I was developing. I was beastly strong during that um, during that show, and um, I feel like my entire life is like collecting vocabulary. I'm collecting vocabulary and collecting ideas, and um, then I was making my own work and I was touring. Um, Laura, before I worked with Rennie, I think we had come up to Bates for the first time. Um, she had seen one of my shows at The Bride and invited me to perform at the company. And um, I had been here maybe two or three times. And after, I think after I had my first daughter, I had been in Philly for a while. I was here. I don't remember what year it was. And I saw David and the company and I thought, well, this is really interesting. I like what's happening. So I spoke to um, Carl, Carl Rogers, who was with the company at the time. And I said, Carl, is David looking for people? Because I think I'd really like to do that. And he said, sure, we're making a new piece. He might be looking for people. So I spoke to David that summer and then joined the company to do Disavowal, which was phenomenal. Um, I loved it. I loved the process, the theatricality, the improvisation. It's a different kind of physicality. So for me, there are all these different ways that your body can work really hard at doing movement, which I love, um, because it also lends itself to that trajectory of ease. I feel like if you know what it's like to really, really grind and grind down into something, you also know how to release it. So um, then I worked with David um, for the run of Disavowal, and then it's that same thing about being based in Philly and having a family and sort of straddling the two things and trying to figure out how to find the balance that worked for me, but also was, was appropriate for the company because the company needs to function as a big touring entity and that's hard to do when there are other things tying you to your location. So after disavowal, um, I left the company with David and I've been in Philly teaching and had another kid even though it was after 30. Um, Naomi, my first daughter, she was born in 2004. Um, that was right after I had done Mecca with Rennie. Because I remember telling him that I was pregnant and we were gonna try. I had this big solo I did in the center with this huge arch and like I walked around my head and it was amazing. And we were going to try to do it while I was pregnant, but I was too sick. Like, I got so queasy the entire time. It was hard to be on the road. So I had to step out before I had her, but I remember, and she was born in 2004, January of 2004, so that must have been 2003. When, um, I stopped working with Rennie. And two years later, I was invited to apply to Massey for a project. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what that could be how to make use of a space to do something, anything that I wanted that I couldn't have done anywhere else if I had everything available to me. And I started thinking about my writing. I started thinking about the thing that I enjoyed most about my work. And it became about conversations. I really like talking to people. I really like figuring out what they care about and why they care about those things um, because I make work about the things that I care most about and I feel very privileged to be able to do that. Uh, I grew up in a very small place where there is not significant arts funding and everybody who makes art makes it after work in addition to everything else that they're doing. Um, they don't always have the same kind of platform. So being able to be in the US, being able to have funding, being able to stand on stage and 
speak about whatever the thing is that you care most about in that moment and have people pay attention and engage is incredible. So for me, it became a lot about how to keep performing, but also how to create spaces where other people could feel that way, other people could feel that what they had to say was important and significant and able to be considered. Along those lines, I had been also trying to explain to my family what I did. And I think if, if you're not surrounded by it, and this is true everywhere in the world because I encounter it here plenty, um, people don't understand what choreography is other than you string a couple dance steps together that somebody taught you. And that's sort of your first understanding of choreography. And so trying to explain to my family, some parts of my fa family are incredibly intellectual. And so this idea of sort of wasted brain space and how could dancing possibly be important enough to dedicate life and energy and time and brain power to. So my mom, my parents trusted me. They, I think they trusted my curiosity about the world and the, the, I guess maybe their raising of my sister and I to try to be very intentional in terms of how we contributed to whatever it is we did. They weren't sure how it was going to play out, but they figured I would find a way to do it. So I spent a lot of time explaining what I thought choreography was, which was this um, gathering of ideas, sort of looking at the things in front of you, figuring out what connected them or what made them disconnected, and then trying to figure out what was happening in your body in response to those things, and then creating movement and then creating an environment for that movement that could tell a story, either narrative or fractured, but something that told something of what you were thinking in a clear enough way that it evoked a response in someone else, whatever. And then the lack of control of that response, which is always phenomenal to me. Um, so I write for everything. And I had these collections of notebooks and I had spent a lot of time trying to remember which notebook I put down where and which one had the notes about the thing I was thinking about and then sort of putting the two notebooks together, gathering the notes from them and trying to always make a fresh notebook for one set of ideas, but then it becomes populated with other things for other ideas, so I'm always reorganizing my notebooks. And I thought what might be really great would be to, to be surrounded by all of those thoughts. So to create a notebook that I could walk through, that I could pull things out of, that I could use to create without having these stacks in front of me that could be open space, that could also allow other people to come in because I had discovered that one lovely point of interaction had been the conversations around creative process. And some of that was propelled by an artist discussion I had in which someone, um, someone made a very casual statement about their being able to sort of wake up slowly in the morning and have this epiphany and have this series of thoughts and this writing and then made the comment that someone sitting in a cubicle could never have done this. And that made me really, really angry because I feel that we forget our privilege and we also become part of a hierarchy that's dismissive when we don't allow for the fact that other people have creative imagination, other people care as much about other things, even though they're choosing to do something else. So 
the idea that you could imagine what someone in a cubicle might be thinking or might be reading or might care about was very offensive. I was deeply offended and I kept coming back to this idea that we really need more space where people can talk about what they're thinking because I have encountered people who read things that I haven't even thought about who have connected ideas in ways that I haven't imagined and I think we forget about that possibility and we get locked into our own brilliance and our own sort of circular internal space and so I wanted that as well. So within the notebook I created spaces with all these questions that I wanted people to respond to and I created spaces where I would offer sort of my palette of drawings and sketches and ask people to create movement based off of these. Just ways that we could keep having conversations that I could share some of what made the choreography and writing really essential to me and I could have someone participate in my process and I could get from them what those thoughts um, created for them. So I had people also writing in what they were reading that were related to the things that I was talking about or what their experiences had been. and. The thing that still continues to be incredible to me is sort of following the responses from other people because as I do it in different places, people are responding to other people's thoughts and other people's comments and there are these conversations that happen on these big sheets of paper from all over the country, from people who don't know each other and it's an anonymity so there's a certain honesty and vulnerability that comes from not having to stand and say your statement, but being able to have it out in the world. And that has been incredibly transformative for me. As I've continued to develop the notebook and think about how to distill the ideas into performance, it's been sort of stops, fits and starts. Uh, the first notebook I did at Mansi was in the name of, and it had to do with ideas about religion, and what we believe and at the time and I still think it's true um, there's sort of the increasing fundamentalism in every religion and I kept asking like what is it that we're not providing for each other in terms of community what is it that we are how are we failing in our friendships how are we failing in our relationships that leaves people missing something that they can only find in those spaces because that's about a sense of belonging that's about a sense of being organized in the world and feeling valued in a very particular way. So I was trying to ask those questions and that was what was happening. That was what was up at Mansi. And I had my costume designer came in, we were working on sets, we had these elaborate plans and I got to like the third notebook where I knew exactly what it was going to be and there's one sheet that describes the piece, the movement vocabulary, the set, the layout, the pathways, the text, all of these things. And then I was exhausted and I didn't make it. Didn't make the piece, have never made that piece. It's still, that role is still right there. Um, while I was making that piece, I had, I had, I had not had Eve yet. So this is 2000, early 2000s. And I was performing somewhere else. I was working on the notebook. I was managing a lot of things. And I called up my costume designer, who's actually a childhood friend, um, who also was going to go into some other, we were in the science track together, and she's a costume, costume mistress at the LA Opera now. So we had a few years of making really great projects together. And I was exhausted, and I was frustrated, and I started talking about, you know, 
being superwoman and trying to manage everything and do everything. And I'm feeling kind of a little sorry for myself. It's like, it's so hard to, you know, be making work and to be balancing everything. And then having conversations with my mother after that where it's like, yeah, but you know, you're getting to choose to do all of those things. You know, nobody's forcing you to have to do that. And it's kind of incredible. And it's that idea of the privilege you don't recognize as well, where it's, oh, right, I decided. I decided to have these degrees and I decided to try to make this work and I decided and yes it feels like an impulse and it feels like I couldn't ever do anything else but I could if I had to and so coming back to this idea of um, superwoman and managing it and what it feels like to sort of give up in a moment and be able to complain and cry and then pull yourself back together and go do the thing that you you know are able to do what you want to do and so I started I did Superwoman and out of that came this idea of breaking and fracturing and that was Crazy Beautiful which was the ne next notebook that I made and Crazy Beautiful at the time I was thinking about some of the childhood my favorite childhood literature the things that are very comforting and I had just read The Alchemist again and Jonathan Livingston Seagull and The Little Prince and The Old Man in the Sea, sort of very classic. And I keep saying, as I talk about them, I know they're all male and I know that I had female sort of transformative characters, but I can't think of them right now. Like I just, these are the ones that are sort of imprinted. And I was interested in these sort of allegorical figures who have this incredible experience. They're on this journey they're changing in all these ways, they're discovering, they turn into this whole other entity at the end, and um, we love those stories. And coming out of Superwoman and sort of finding all of these different balances, I was thinking, yeah, but we really don't like it when it happens like, right next to us. It's a really good story and it's very inspiring, but it's very, very messy. And having to have someone you care about or that you're close to falling apart and cracking open and transforming is really, really difficult. So then I became curious about what that looks like in life and how we manage it, how we manage it for ourselves, how we manage it for the people around us. And then it started coming back to this idea of breaking things open. And when I was 12, was I 12, 13? I loved physical geography, volcanoes especially, but everything about how the earth and structure moved. And I kept coming to like back to this idea of eruptions and openings and layerings and buildings and this idea that every single thing on the planet, except for the people, goes through that process. Everything like builds up this pressure, breaks open, turns into something else, starts to build something else and then reforms and then does it again and again and again and again. And that's how we end up with all these incredible, beautiful things like, you know, flowers and mountains and trees and um, butterflies. <laughs> and, and then I was just curious, like, why is it that we are so resistant to that? Like, we spend so much time not getting to the point where we break open. And then we completely lose it when it happens, we're confused, we're angry, we're upset, and then we try to control all of it and contain it. And so now I'm curious about, you know, what happens if we just let that happen? Like, that's just, we're part of everything else. 
if things build up, we just like, you know, and then, you know, breathe. And then you have more information about yourself, about the people around you, and then you build the next layer. So Crazy Beautiful became about that. Like what happens when you have, when you fracture, when you give yourself permission to fracture? And what are the permissions that exist around you and where they came from? Like who decided where and when you should sit up straight and how you should use your cutlery and when you should cry and not cry and how you should grieve and what it should look like and when it should end. And we have all of these rules wherever you come from. It's like, well, I don't know who decided and I don't know that we decided because it was good for us or who it was good for, but I'm curious. So those questions were in the Crazy Beautiful Notebook and I just made that piece and I premiered it in April in Philly and it was half notebook, half performance space. So I kept all of the iterations of the notebook going and created one studio space that had previous notebooks and then invited the audience to come in and experience, have their own experience inside of that notebook. And I sort of talked with them, walked through, explained what was happening the way I would do with the sort of regular notebook. And then they entered um, sort of a deconstructed notebook that Sebastian Mundine worked with me on creating. She's a visual artist in Philly. And we took sort of this idea of hanging pages. The notebook consists of hanging pages throughout the space and they make this maze um, that you sort of, you navigate and you find these different areas inside of it. Some of them are enclosed, some of them are open, but sort of questions and comments and things. And there are things on the walls and on the floors. And um, so Sebastian made this sort of deconstructed space. And because we were looking at um, these particular texts, especially the images from Jonathan Livingston Siegel, she had this sort of crumpled paper that was hung in the air. So it looked like the pages were moving and flying through space and we were all enclosed together in this space, like the papers were behind the audience. And um, I had collected different stories. So there were three episodes that happened um, in the space together. And the, the primary one I sort of distilled down to was a friend in high school who had taken his clothes off one day and started directing traffic. And um, there was a moment for myself and I think for a couple other people where you know we were similar ages and we were all really high achieving students. And there was that moment of like, huh, I wonder what it would be like to just stop caring what everybody thought and just doing whatever. And then thinking, yeah, but that's not what's happening right now because there's not control over that moment. I don't know that he's making a decision to do this. This is what is happening to him. And, but I was curious about that, like that moment, like it's, wouldn't it be just a relief to stop caring and do the thing? I don't know what happens to that thought, but it's a thought, and it's part of the thought that's in the piece, in the final writing, and in the final performance of that soul. In terms of creating dance, I keep trying to have a thing that I think that I do. I'm not sure that I have a thing that I do. I have, I really, really like what I decided was the postmodern ideology, which is that everything is material. And so I try to start from wherever I think. If it's a poem that I read, then it starts from text. If it's something that I've been thinking about that I wrote, it starts from text. If it's 
a shape that I saw, then it starts from that shape or that movement. If it's just a physical idea, if I was running and I tripped and it created an interesting fall, then it starts there. If there's some really incredible music that I heard that I want to make something to, then it starts there. So I think it, it depends on what's happening. It does always have writing in it. So at some point there is text that either I write or that I find. Um, I, have, I haven't decided if it's good or bad. And I was telling my class maybe at the beginning of the week that I made and I have made a really concerted effort to always be Caribbean in some way. Sometimes it's in the music, it's always in the movement, although depending on the degree of abstraction, you don't necessarily see a Caribbean movement. Um, I like the idea of things existing side by side. And so, for example, when I'm working with rep with the students, we'll have both pieces of music. We'll have the solemn piano music that creates this really sustained quality. And then we'll have that dance hall on top of it. And eventually we'll layer them and we'll figure out what happens to those two vocabularies, what happens in your body and in your sensibility. Um, I think I play a lot with the movement once I figure out what the palette is going to be and see what changes when I do it this way or that way or what changes as I read this particular set of impulses. We did yesterday in repertory, I gave them a list of words and we were creating gestures based on those words, which is an, a thing that I actually, I do that often. Once I think I decide what the piece is about, I give myself lists of words and I use those words to create gestures and then I take those gestures and start making phrases and then I expand them. Um, I have a desire to always to create a movement I haven't seen before and so that becomes a thing that I work towards. Like what, if I want to go right then I'll try going left instead. And if I think I've seen somebody do this particular kind of leap or fall that's interesting then I wonder what would happen if I tried them at the same time, or if I did something weird with my elbow, or if I layered all of these other things. So I think I'm always looking for the newest vocabulary or the vocabulary that I think is only specific to this set of ideas. And that's a lot of what drives it. I really like generating movement. I really, really, really like generating movement. Um, I think some of that comes from my my impulse, but also my composition training. We did um, composition at Madison um, with Claudia Melrose. She was Nikolai trained, and it was a lot about design. And so we would, the thing that I remember the most was we went to a Bill Viola exhibit, and we had to pick three shapes from three different rooms. And then we probably worked on those shapes for weeks. Change it this way, make it lower, make it higher, put it on your back, turn it around, do it to the left, to the right. What movement comes out of that shape? Where does that movement go? How does it turn into something else? And then you suddenly you had three shapes and then you had a five minute piece. on And I love that degree of structure and intricacy and the idea that you can create emotive quality and tone just from taking the movement apart. I like emotional tone and quality. Um, so that's, that's a big impulse. I like narratives, I like stories. And so I think I always try to tell a story of some kind. Sometimes maybe it's too transparent, I don't know, but I like 
the conversation. It feels like a conversation when I'm saying what I'm thinking about. And so I like to say what I'm thinking about. In terms of choreographic structures, um, I think once I start to have a vocabulary, I think about the design of the space and what that does. Um, how is it weighted so that the design of it becomes its own narrative? There's a figure here, a figure there. They move back, they come through, how do they fall, how do they... And that takes a lot of time. I'm not the fastest choreographer, and my first version of everything is hardly ever my favorite version at all. I don't know, that's probably true for a lot of people, I would imagine, but um, I think the, it takes me about three years, if I'm making an evening length piece, to get to a point where I feel like it's done and it's ready and I wouldn't do anything else to it. And that's from seeing it and figuring it out and watching responses and having a lot of conversations with people about what it is they've seen and felt and how it is. I try to work with composers as much as I can and sometimes it's a budgetary issue. Um, and designers. Yeah, I like environments. Um, I like to make environments. I like to make worlds that people step into. I think even if you're talking about something relatively straightforward that happens in everyday life, it's still nice to step into someone else's imagination of it or to just step completely out of what it is you left behind. And that's a little bit hard to do in proscenium sometimes, but I think that you can suggest it and you can invite it at different points in time. Um, and I've started playing more and more with gallery spaces and other spaces. When I did the last Crazy Beautiful at Fringe, we did it all on the stage together. So they pulled all the risers back and we were all in one space, sort of cocooned in one space. And so I think I, I'm, keep, I'm looking continuously for ways to create an environment for us to be together. I think that my first daughter shifted a lot of things for me in terms of how I work as an artist because it became a lot less precious uh, because everything was interrupted. And I had two other dancers who had kids sort of relative, about the same age. So we had three babies in the room in rehearsal and there was sort of that, um, we're in the middle of this intense conversation with this, and everyone goes, oh, baby! And we stopped because someone had crawled into the space or somebody needed a diaper change or somebody needed to be fed or go to the bathroom. And so there was the combination of sort of this intensity and this real life that's happening. It's like, oh yeah, we're, we're making art and that's great, but all of the rest of the world is happening and still needs to happen. So we're not going to close ourselves off in this space. So it was really fluid and I think that helped me relax a lot in being able to trust the idea and trust the people and figure that you know you don't have to separate yourself out from everything else in order to do the thing you care about most. Every time I've been here it's been phenomenal and I think it's the community of people and I try to describe it it's a community of people who are equally invested in artistic practice and in teaching they care intensely about their students as intensely as they care about making work and I think that that is very difficult to find. I think there are people who care a lot about their work who teach and they do a nice job of teaching but they're not as invested in the possibilities of every student and how that arc 
develops and how the community of students work together. And there are people who are very invested in that teaching practice who are not as committed to really deeply investigative artistic work. And I think here we have people who do both and people who respect both, even if they don't actively practice both. And that has been phenomenal to be a part of. It's my favorite thing about being here. And the students who come, um, I think, are students who want that environment. And they show up to class, and they're thinking about five different things, and they're bringing all of that in, and they ask a lot of questions, and they're very demanding, which is awesome. Um, I would like to think that I was a demanding student, but I had people who loved that and liked answering all of my questions, and that fed me um, tremendously. So I like being available in that way. Um, the faculty, like those are the people um, always open to conversations, really um, easygoing in the sort of, you know, in, in the way that we're all here and we've all agreed that we care a lot about these sets of things. And so everything just becomes easy. I've tried to get as many students as possible to be here because I think it's hard to replicate this community and I think it's a great experience to have, to be working hard side by side with other dancers without the crazy competitiveness that is just part of so many other situations. The festival director is Shoshana Courier. The director of training programs is Allie James. Sound recorded by Ellen Maynard. Editing by me, Lindsay LaPointe. The interview was conducted by Vladimir Kremenovic. Music featured by Adam Crawley. <laughs>